Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> and online, um, you can actually get the uh, outline from the, either the notes tab or now there should be an icon coming up. I think it says memo or something like that in the chat. Uh, just click on that and you'll have the notes. Um, so last Sunday, we celebrated the greatest event in all of the history of the universe, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. We proclaimed with all the saints from throughout history that the tomb is empty. And with over a billion people around the globe, we announced to the world that he is risen indeed, and we proclaimed the single event upon which our entire faith stands. That is not an overstatement. That's exactly what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. Look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, the beginning of the second paragraph. Look at this now. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. You ready? If Jesus stayed dead like all the other millions of Passover lambs had always stayed dead for one and a half thousand years of Passover celebration, then we would have no more forgiveness than what lambs can give us. The crucifixion without the resurrection is a dead faith. Gone, dead. <laughs> I mean, can you believe his honesty? So think of this. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But the great news is Christ has risen, right? And so through the ages, the resurrection has been the foundation for the faith. Look at Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So God has given us overwhelming evidence for the resurrection. We'll take a peek at a, a, a bit of that today. Um, He's done it through the testimony of Scripture and through the testimony of history. But even though that's true, there's a bit of a complication, right? Here's the complication. The very thing that has to be true is absurd. <laughs> Have you ever seen a resurrection? I've never seen a resurrection. I bet nobody in here has actually ever seen a resurrection. Now, I have congratulated myself for some amazing resuscitations in the university trauma center in my life. Yeah, you know, we're high-fiving, doing the Lord's work back here, uh, right? Uh, saving lives. Uh, so, but never a resurrection. They weren't, because they aren't dead till they're real dead. And Jesus was really dead. Jesus was in Hades for three days. So this is an amazing complication when you think about it, right? So because of this, every single Every single person throughout history who has believed in Christ has had times of doubt. In fact, every apostle voiced doubt, right? So it's normal for believers to have genuine questions about the faith. And Easter time is actually the perfect time to talk about shaky faith. Because if Christ has not been raised, we're all hopeless. 
You know, if they had gone the spiritual resurrection route, like many of today's churches that have lost the true faith are doing, oh, it's just a spiritual resurrection. He's alive in our hearts. Do you realize that if the apostles had done that, they never would have been executed? They could have had that faith, and all the Romans would have said, oh, that sounds kind of cool. sounds kind of like other guys we know. Yeah, they're still in our hearts too. They went the route that said, no, if he has not been raised in the flesh, we are of all most to be pitied. So, this morning we're going to talk about the antidotes for shaky faith, because all of us, at least sometimes, have shaky faith, right? Here they are. Here's your notes. Start number one, antidote number one. I really know the truth about God. I really know the truth about God. And number two, I've actually experienced God personally. The two antidotes for shaky faith. Now, I want us to notice something. To have a high degree of confidence and a firm faith that can weather any storm, it takes both antidotes. It requires really knowing truth and really experiencing God. If you're strong on one of the antidotes but weak on the other, guess what? You'll always, stri- you'll always struggle with doubt. So that means there's a potential for two kinds of shaky faith. Ready? Here's your blank. Shaky foundation number one. Have an ex- having an experience with God, right? So having a genuine experience with God without really knowing the truth about him. This shaky foundation creates two problems. Here's your next blanks. Problem number one. This person is very susceptible to false teaching, right? They had an experience. They felt amazing. They know God's real. They know God's in them. They had an experience, but this person is very susceptible to false teaching and to manipulating the truth for their own interest. So what happens if you believe that you've had an experience with Christ, but you don't ground the knowledge of who Jesus actually is in the word of God, completely in the word of God, you end up with, here's your next blanks, the error of experience without truth. Experience, but without truth. You ready? You make your Christ into what you want him to be. Are we not watching that today? You make up the Jesus that you want. Experience devoid of grounding in the word of God. So many Christians have beliefs that are based upon a manipulation of the truth rather than the truth. They've met Jesus and they may go to church, but the Jesus they have met isn't the real Jesus. Big problem. (laughs) So they actually believe in Jesus, but they believe in a Jesus of their own making. So why is this error so widespread in the church today? You ready for this? Look at George Barna's striking finding. Here's your blanks. George Barna's striking finding. The average Christian in America spends seven times more time on electronic media than they do in all forms of personal and corporate worship, devotions, prayer, and Bible study combined. Based upon this, How many of us are making up our own truth about who God is? Problem number two, here's your blank. The person with an experience, but without the truth, is very vulnerable to having the validity, listen, having the validity of their experience brought into question. You see, 
This problem leads to a very <laughs> inconvenient fact for us, right? Here's your next blanks. Merely having an experience with God without having a deep knowledge of God is a flimsy foundation for faith. In fact, this idea, uh, whoops, sorry, I changed up my, uh, my plan today. Uh, page two is behind page one. Uh, so if a person like this has a testimony of a real experience, some might be saying, well, what's the, what's the problem with that? I mean, if they've really experienced Jesus, if the Holy Spirit has really come to them and they really experience the one true God, um, isn't that enough? Isn't it enough to just experience Christ? Isn't Christ alone the basis for the faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because there are millions of Jesuses who have been created. Millions of Christs over the years, the centuries that have been created. This dramatically distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths. You know, every religion, in fact, every spiritual path, every cult has a testimony of an experience. Have you ever realized that? Have you ever thought about that? Every single spiritual path has a testimony of an experience. So you'll find people who will say, blank filled my life, uh, changed my life. Fill in the blank. Right, blank, whatever it is, changed my life. Hey, here's my short list, right? Buddha, Joseph Smith, Islam, New Age, Hinduism, Hare Krishna, Dr. Phil, and nutritional supplements. <laughs> Have you not heard it on TV? They're selling with that. This, this change, I, I eat my entire, I don't even have to eat lettuce anymore because I eat these seven vegetable pills and it's changed my life, right? I mean, it's constant, it's constant. And only our vegetable pills, by the way, work. So buy ours, right? So don't miss this. When people, this is really important. When people say X changed my life, they're telling the truth. They're not lying, okay? This is really important for us as believers to understand. They're being honest. They may have complete faith in whatever has changed their life. This is how cults get started, right? You have this, um, this danger. This is why they're so dangerous. A person may have had an experience, but failing to test the truth claims against reality and history and reason means that they can believe that they'll find eternal life on the other side of the Hale-Bopp comet. Just Google it. Hale-Bopp comet. And you will find cults that believe that that's where heaven exists, Right? And by the way, 19 people killed themselves over that truth in San Diego about 20 years ago because they knew they were going to meet God on the other side of the Hale-Bopp comet. It's amazing. See, their experience creates a powerful alternate reality, and it's so powerful that they can end up believing with all their heart that God wants them to fly jetliners into buildings filled with thousands of people. Ever seen that happen? Think about it. Their reality creates a new reality that's absolutely real to them. They have indeed been evangelized by falsehood. But unfortunately, this problem isn't just isolated to lunatics, cults, and false religions. Today, there are plenty of Christians who formulated their own beliefs about God, reality, economics, sexuality, salvation, politics, heaven, hell, and a host of other things. And you know what it's based upon? A whole hodgepodge of teachers, philosophers, songwriters, televangelists, and talk show hosts. Just this big schmaltz of, my, it's my truth. Do you know how many Christians 
believe in their truth, or they've gone the lazy route of just buying into whatever their church teaches, right? Without ever going to the Word and actually testing it like the Word said we should, says we should be doing, and without spending time with others in the church grappling with the challenging issues of faith, of actually confessing, I have real questions. I have real questions about this. So, here's the problem. A person like this is really vulnerable because they inevitably end up with beliefs that don't hold up under scrutiny. Right, when you've just kind of made it up? And onlookers easily identify this. So, your testimony of knowing God while it's real to you, it looks absurd to other people. Inconsistencies, doesn't hold together, isn't linked to any historic teachings. It's just the new Jesus that I've made up. So an astute skeptic comes along, guess what? They blow holes in the inconsistent beliefs and the fake faith of that person is shaken. So let me give two ways to powerfully support and bolster our faith. Faith support number one, back to your notes. Consistent, faith support number one, consistent study, consistently study scripture to deepen your understanding of who God is. You want to know the real God? You want to know the real Jesus? It's not up here. It's in here, transformed by the Holy Spirit to here and here, both. That's where it is, but always anchored. You are never a source of authority for yourself, ever. There is one source of authority. It is the word of God. So the way you confirm that you've met the real Jesus is by comparing your Jesus to the Jesus of Scripture. Don't ever let go of this powerful defense. No matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter how busy you are, no matter how you feel, always, always stay in the word. There is no substitute for this. Faith support number two, here's your blanks. Arm yourself with the irrefutable evidence. Arm yourself with the irrefutable evidence for God's existence. I've put a list of things there that have been helpful to me in your handout. It's in small font, but uh, I didn't want to take up a bunch of space. Sorry about the crackles. But um, the other thing is, if you want to come up after here, I mean, I've got, this is my, this is my short stack here. It's about 23 pounds. Um, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. This is every one of those, oh, the Bible's inconsistent. The Bible has contradictions in it. It goes encyclopedically through every problem in the Bible and shows the magnificent resolution of it. See, the history of Christian thought through the scripture has done a lot of the homework that we can benefit from if we'll take the time to arm ourselves. So there's a whole bunch of them, way more than there. I mean, I love Geisler's stuff. And uh, anyway, I just wanna, I wanna make sure that all of us, all of us, are reading. If, if you're confident in your faith, why not read this so you'll know how to speak to the person who comes to you who isn't confident in their faith? Because I heard once that my Christian life isn't supposed to be mostly about me. How about be pre- being prepared for the other person who doesn't have strong faith, even if you do? So I'll end this section with some questions. How often do you allow your beliefs to come under the scrutiny of the word? Is it a consistent pattern in your life or is your commitment to know the scripture a hit and miss operation? Does God get your best time or does he get your leftover time in little snippets of convenience for you? Have you met the real Jesus or have you made up your own? So let's look now at the flip side, right? Here's shaky foundation number two. 
Knowing the truth about God, you may know all these books backwards and forwards. Having an amazing apologetic, knowing the truth about God without really experiencing him personally. Now stop and think about this. It's one thing to believe that humans could come to know some facts about God. If God exists, it's reasonable to think that humans could discover some facts about God. But what about the idea that we can actually be in relationship with the first cause of the universe? It just makes no sense that the one who spoke all creation into existence could actually be known personally. The deists make a lot of sense. There's this blind watchmaker, right, that got it all started, and then now he's out like keeping galaxies from running into each other, but why would he care about anybody personally? That's the deistic view, that God doesn't really intervene. He doesn't really care. In fact, this idea that we could know him personally is so ridiculous, we're going to spend the rest of the message going through some key concepts that show us how that is true, even though it doesn't make any sense. Now, as we begin with this key concept, let's take a big step back. Key concept number one, God is actually knowable, actually knowable personally. Here's the step back. In the church, we've gotten so used to hearing this that we forget that this may be the single most unlikely truth in all of reality. Track with me here. That we could know the creator personally is maybe the single most unlikely truth in all of reality. The fact is, even if God could be known by simple creatures like us, it still makes absolutely no sense that he would want to be known. Just look around. Why would the perfect, all-powerful being want to know this? Us. This world. The people who have come to inhabit planet Earth. Um, I hope you think me not being irreverent, but sometimes church people need to be shaken up at the absurdity of what we believe because then it drives us to the word to show us that no matter how crazy it sounds, Jesus is alive and he wants to know you and he wants to know me personally. That's crazy, but it's true. So, you ready for this? Let's take a hard, honest look at the logic of, here's your blanks, the logic of the possibility of knowing God. The idea that God desires to be known isn't just surprising, it's actually absurd. <laughs> Let me illustrate this. See, there's two kinds of people that regular old people like you and me, sorry if there's somebody here who's really, really like known all over the world this morning, I'd be surprised. But even if you do, you don't, I don't know you. So um, notice that, that there's two kinds of unknowable people, okay? Ready? Number one, write it in. Someone really famous. I mean really famous. Now, many of you, let me give an example. Um, many of you know of Lou Dolson, right? He was the coach for a quarter of a century at U of A basketball, turned it into a dynasty, won a national championship. In fact, he was... Uh, at least at the time, one of only six college basketball coaches in the entire history of college basketball who was inducted into the Hall of Fame while he was still coaching. I mean, that's how big, that's how famous Lute was. Uh, and some of you who, since I'm preaching in Phoenix, we lived in Tucson then, and of course there may be a few of you who are Sun Devil fans here, you might remember that during a, a significant part of Lute's uh, uh, great years, ASU's coach was Bill Frieder. And 
I want you to see this brilliant use of two little snippets of commercials by Bank One using the, the handsome, tall, world-famous Lute Olson versus the frumpy Bill Frieder. Watch this. Olson, I can't believe it. My husband will be so thrilled. Well, thank you, ma'am. Oh, and you take such a handsome photograph, Mr. Olson. Thanks. <laughs> Bank One's personalized credit and checking cards make shopping safer and more convenient. Here you go, Mr. Olson. I'm so thrilled. Thank you. This must be your lucky day. Well, it's not every day you get to meet a famous basketball coach, Mr. Uh, Ritter. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> Show the next one. Did it run out? It, it, it's worth the glitch. You gotta see this one. It's the best commercial in the history of the world. Olson. Wow, cost a lot? Oh, okay, back it up a Ritter? little. Hey doc, can you, uh, you know, help me? I can try. Will it cost a lot? Yes, a lot. Wow. With Bank One's loan by phone, you can get a loan. Bank One? Even a 100% home equity loan in 30 minutes or less. Approved? Great. Doc, make me the best looking coach in Arizona. It's amazing. I truly believe you are the best looking coach in Arizona. <laughs> if that doesn't make you laugh, you need a resurrection. I mean, especially living in Arizona, right? I mean, uh, so uh, the, uh, the, uh, he was so famous that his autobiography now is approaching a million copies uh, sold, right? One summer, Lute and Bobby were taking vacation in Hungary, Eastern Europe. They were in Budapest, and all of a sudden, Bobby got severe abdominal pain and started throwing up, and she didn't have, they, she was so sick, they couldn't, they couldn't go back to, they had been based in, in Vienna, uh, Austria, um, and so they went to the university hospital, because they were told that's the best hospital in the country, um, and uh, there, Bobby ended up having emergency surgery for her, for her bowel obstruction, um, and... Um, this is a, a portion of Lutz's autobiography. You'll see how this uh, has anything to do with anything in a minute. Um, so Lutz's uh, autobiography, yeah, there's the, there's the front of it. Uh, Bobby was in the recovery room. It was incredibly hot there, and the nurses were sitting at a table outside the room smoking. There wasn't even a fan in the room, and at night we couldn't keep the window open or the lights on because of the mosquitoes. The hospital was on a busy road, so there was a constant roar of traffic. The best hospital in Budapest, supposedly... But it was the most deplorable situation imaginable. There wasn't even any toilet tissue in the bathrooms. You had to get your own. And then Bobby's temperature started rising. She had a raging fever. We needed to get her fever down. Paul Weitzman, who was with us, raced back and forth to the hotel to bring back uh, bags of ice. Finally, finally, her fever gradually was starting to fall. It was obvious that things weren't getting better. Bobby was in a uh, tremendous amount of pain, but they wouldn't give her any pain medication. One of the doctors spoke just enough English to tell us that they were planning on taking her back to the operating room for more surgery. This was my greatest fear. I have never been too comfortable about using my fame for special treatment, but this time I didn't hesitate. Bobby had earned everything special we could give her. I called the dean of the University of Arizona School of Medicine, Jim Dallin, for advice. He said, don't move her, don't move her, don't do anything yet. He immediately sent our family doctor, Mike Marasek, and an emergency surgeon, Daniel Spate, to Budapest to take control of her care. I am not making this up. This is actually 
in Lutz's autobiography. Um, the two doctors from the university arrived in Budapest the next day. Dr. Spate was the head of emergency tra air transportation at the university. After examining Bobby, he told us she couldn't be moved. She's obstructed and bloated, he explained. She can't fly. She won't be able to un withstand the pressure. There'll be a small window when maybe we can get her home. We had to be ready to move her during that time period. Dr. Spate and Marisek told me that the Hungarian doctors were trying to take her back to surgery. They were adamant that they would not that allow that to happen. She was so weak and they said she wouldn't survive another surgery. They promised me, no one is going to take her anywhere, we're not leaving this room, and they didn't. One of them sat there while the other went to the hotel to sleep, and they went back and forth. They just wouldn't leave her side. If they hadn't come over, I don't believe Bobby would have made it home alive. After two days of the doctor staying at Bobby's side round the clock, finally we got an ambulance. Well, they called it an ambulance, but it was a little more than a delivery van with a bed in the back, and we moved Bobby to Vienna. After six days there, doctor, by the way, that was the craziest ambulance ride of my career. Here we were going like 120 miles an hour in an ambulance, an, a 50-year-old ambulance, knowing that if we rolled over and turned into trauma patients, I was going back to that surgeon who I had just basically <laughs> dissed and had almost got thrown in jail for saying he was not taking Bobby to the OR. After six days, uh, uh, there at the University of Vienna, Dr. Spate said she was ready to fly home in a Gulfstream that had been uh, fitted like a hospital. Um, this is two and a half years later. Uh, she had great years. Uh, she had ovarian cancer, got much better for a while. But here she is, two laters at Christmas time. Bobby's, uh, Bobby's cancer had taken its course, and she was in her final hospitalization. Our family, with all of our children, grandchildren, came to Tucson for Christmas. A couple of days before Christmas, all of us, I think there were 24 of our family members, squeezed into our hospital room for a little ceremony. Our pastor, Mark Ressler, was there with his wife and two girls, and Dr. Dan Spate, the doctor who had flown to Budapest two years earlier and from then on had been with Bobby all the time, came to Bobby's room that night with his wife, their son, and daughter, and they led us all in Christmas carols. It would be accurate to say that there was no one in the room who had ever felt the love of our, for our family and the meaning of Christ and Christmas more than that night in Bobby's hospital room. We knew that we were saying goodbye to her. So, um, by the way, I, I was going to bring my props, you know, because Josiah and Pastor Kurt have been bringing the, their props all the time, but my props from Lute, especially now that he's gone on to be with the Lord, had amazing interactions with Lute and Bobby during that time about the return to their faith, it was incredible. But uh, mine are actually really valuable. Like the, uh, the, the Nike CEO sent me uh, white um, golf, it, it, he thought I golfed, uh, golf shoes that are signed by loot. They're one of a kind on the planet. So you can you know, lose and break up their props, but my props are really valuable, so I didn't bring them. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> Here's the point. And Jeff, you can't have our loot basketballs. I've seen the one in your office. Um, here's the point. Here, why, why do I take this much time to talk about this friend? See, Lute Olson is the only really famous person I've ever known well. But without incredibly unusual circumstances, I'd never have met Lute, let alone get invited to their house every Christmas Eve to come sing and have dinner with them. We couldn't stay for dinner, but we would come sing. I mean, we were there just, it was, it was an amazing time. And he gave, you know, courtside season tickets for me and my family. You realize how much those cost in Tucson? 
I mean, sorry, Sun Devils, you can get it. You know, they're a dime a dozen here. It's hard to get into McHale Center. Um, so bottom line is, how could that have happened? It, it, here's how it happened. It just happened that I was on U of A faculty. Bobby just happened to need to be rescued from a Hungarian hospital. And it just happened that I had spent my career subspecializing in ultra-long-distance, complicated air medical transport. Those things just kind of all happened, and that the dean of the medical school got off the phone with Loot and called me and said, Dan, can you go to Hungary and get Bobby? If all of those things had happened, I would be just one of 5,000 U of A faculty who would love <laughs> to get to know Loot personally, but would never even have met him. Why? Because he's really famous and I'm not. So, uh, people who are really famous don't get known. A knowable person number two, write it in. Someone really important. Why do we spend tens of millions of dollars a year funding the Secret Service? To protect the president, right? Their job is to keep people away from the big shot. Their job, we spend millions of dollars making the president inaccessible. So famous people and important people don't get to be known. An entire system is set up to make sure that no one has access to them. Now contrast that to the creator of the universe. A bit more famous, powerful, and rich, and wealthy than anyone you will ever dream of knowing. Not only does he want to be accessible to the masses, he actually wants a relationship with us. And amazingly, you ready? You know who he loves being with? The lowly, the meek, and the unknown. You know who he loves being friends with? People like you and me. In this world, those who are truly famous, powerful, and important make themselves inaccessible, but our God is exactly the opposite. And the beauty of the Christian faith is, at its very foundation, there's a perfect combination I guess I'm going to have to go back to my old way of doing this. Uh, skip three key concepts and the Mellon College would be crazy because you wouldn't be able to fill in all your blanks. All right, here we go. Key concept number two. God isn't just knowable. He actually longs to be known. Look at the scripture from Isaiah 30. So the Lord longs for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. Listen to this. The Lord longs for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. See, God waits for us. That's what that word means. He longs for us. But compare this to someone like, say, the Queen of England. I could make it my number one priority for the rest of my life to try to get to have an audience with Queen Elizabeth. And you know what? All that would happen is ultimately they would arrest me for being a stalker, right? It just can't happen. We just can't get to know powerful, famous, wealthy people. We can't. And here is God who desperately wants to be with us. You ready for this? The king of the universe actually pursues us. He waits for us. And you know, this is the big mind blower. He not only loves us, he actually likes us. Now, self-love is normal for humans, right? But self-like isn't it? Isn't, right? I mean, how many times have you said, oh, I cannot believe I did that? How many times do we not like ourselves? Our God even likes us. He knows everything about us. So stop here for a minute. 
Because see, some of you here, maybe many, have been rejected. You've been rejected. Maybe by friends or a spouse, a family member. Some might have even been rejected by your father or your mother. That's a hard place to be. But you ready for this? (laughs) No matter what's happened in your life, the Heavenly Father yearns to be with you. He adores you. He longs to be your closest friend. It's impossible, but it's true. Key concept number three, ready? In the end, if a person doesn't really know God, then nothing else matters. Look from Jeremiah chapter nine. Look at it on the screen. This is what the Lord says. This is amazing. Think of what God can do through wisdom, power, and wealth. He can do amazing things through people who have that, right? But let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Let not the powerful boast of their power. Let not the rich boast of their riches, but let those who boast, boast of this, that they understand and know me. Now think about the great purposes of these three gifts from God. They can bring about compassion and mercy and healing. They can improve the lives of others, the lives of the poor. They can help the marginalized. Think of the great things that those three gifts from God can be used for. But here's what Jeremiah tells us. When you combine them all together, they pale in significance compared to the value of simply knowing God. So let's apply. Here's your application. Write it in. If you haven't actually experienced God personally, then you don't really know him. Unfortunately, many people who believe in Christ have never really encountered Jesus personally. And see, this creates a problem. Until a person has really met Jesus and allowed him to truly be Lord, their faith is easily threatened. Well, of course it is. Earlier we saw the error of experience without truth, right? Saying, I, I, hey, I had this life-changing experience, but when it's not grounded in the truth of the word, we saw that creates a problem. Well, here's the other one. The error of truth without experience. You ready? Write it in. The person who knows about Christ but hasn't really experienced him will always have a fragile faith because it's only intellectual. We're not Stoics. Philosophy doesn't save the world. Jesus does, personally. So, guess who saved the three guys in the fire? Someone who even Nebuchadnezzar could say, wow, he looks like a son of God. Well, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Always the savior and always saving personally. Not just saving the world, but saving you and me. It is amazing. So society constantly challenges our belief in God, right? So even if a person is well-versed in the intellectual arguments for his existence, that alone is an insufficient protection against the world's constant bombardment against the faith. But God has a plan to demolish even the most brilliant attacks on our faith. You see, when you've truly experienced Christ and entered into a real relationship, listen to this, You'll never be at the mercy of a person who comes at you with a mere argument. Isn't that great? There are people that are way smarter than all of us who are very excellent intellectually and can make great arguments against Jesus' resurrection. 
But you know what? If you actually know him, their argument, their mere argument, will never be able to take out your faith. You can't just be saved intellectually in the long run. If you don't really know Jesus, somebody will trump your intellectual prowess. And then what are you left with? Maybe it wasn't true in the first place. Ready for this? Here's your blank. The true believer has one ultimate impenetrable defense. The skeptic has no real power over someone who actually knows Jesus personally. See, even the most articulate atheists won't be able to shake their faith because they have a deeper foundation than just simple evidence. They have something else. They've truly experienced Christ, so they'll never be at the mercy of a mere argument against their faith because their faith, you ready? Their faith is based upon both factual truth and a personal friendship with the God of the universe. And here's the problem with one-sided faith, write it in. Here's the problem with one-sided faith, knowing a lot about God, but not really knowing him, ready? It is when someone has truly experienced the indwelling Christ, excuse me, when someone hasn't truly experienced the indwelling Christ, they have religion, but not power. They have religion, maybe strong religion, but not power. And this explains, listen church, this explains why so many people, so many people can pass all the knowledge tests in the church about God and they're still living in sin. I know all about him. But I don't know him well enough to trust him with my life and my decisions and what I do and what I want to do. I I don't trust him like that. I just know that he exists. And they may be able to argue down brilliant skeptics, but if you don't really know him, guess what? Intellect has never taken any, cleansed anybody's sin. Only Jesus personally in the heart and mind doing the cleansing will that ever happen. So they may know theology and the creeds and the rules and the scripture, and they may even be able to argue powerfully the truth of the Christian faith, but if they haven't experienced the indwelling Christ who comes in and transforms them, then they don't have a real faith. So this is why a real testimony of a real encounter with God is so important. This is why the story is so powerful, but it takes both. The story has to be defendable as true, and the story of, I I can't explain this. It's like the people arguing about the theology of whether this They thought Jesus, of course, was demon-possessed because how would he have all these powers? So the Pharisees are saying, you know, say, hey, say he's demon-possessed or whatever. He says, you know, I don't know about all that theology stuff, but this one thing I do know. Once I was blind, but now I see. Changed. Unexplainable if it's not real. So the... This is just the beauty of the Christian faith. Ready? Here's the key concept. When a person doesn't have both the foundations of truth and personal experience, they'll always deal with recurrent doubts about their faith. So I, I want to finish by looking at Paul's great, great testimony from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at it. It's on the screen. Write it in. I want you to write this text in. For I know 
for I know, for I know whom I have believed in. Most of you know that the biblical concepts in both the Hebrew and the Greek of knowing is deeply experiential. It's not just factual knowledge. So Paul didn't just know that God exists. He didn't just know that God is. Do you know to this day, over 90% of Americans believe in God. Over 80% of Americans believe in one God. But they know about him. But so many of them don't really know him. So see, Paul actually undeniably, really unmistakably knew God himself. So, Pastor Josiah, bring the team on up. I want to finish with a story from Paul's life to see just how real his knowledge was. Turn with me to Acts, to the left, a couple of books. You're in 1 Corinthians. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. This, I love this story. I mean, this is a fairly, it should be really famous, but it's kind of, it, 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 I think it's more subtle. You may not remember this story from the Acts, but it is incredible. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. It's the, what, third or fourth paragraph. And it happened that they were going to the place of certain prayer. So, so this will be Paul and Luke. You probably know that Luke wrote the Acts, and Luke spent, went on most of the, 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 was with Paul for the missionary journeys, okay? So Luke writing and talking about we, that means at least Luke and Paul. Ready? Happened they were going to the place of a prayer. A certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. That might be considered child abuse nowadays, right? Following after Paul and us, she, was, she kept crying out, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Don't you love it when God makes a demon say, by the way, they follow the right God and that's where salvation is? He even controls the demons, my friends. This is great, look at this. I love this story. Verse 18, and she continued doing this for many days. This makes me feel that Paul wasn't so sanctified that he couldn't be annoyed. Doesn't that make you feel better? Look at what the text actually says, that Paul was greatly annoyed, not that sanctified, right? And turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when she, her master saw that their hope for profit was gone. Can you believe these schmucks? Look at this. She's just been delivered from a demon, and now they're bummed that their business has gone out the door. Look at this. And they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And then they, when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. And the crowd rose up against them, and the chief magistrate tore their robes off of them, and they proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Verse 23, and then, when they had inflicted many blows upon them. Listen to that. There were not laws against cruel and unusual punishment back then. Lots of people died from these beatings by the hands of the Romans. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, oh, this convicts me. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. 
Look at this situation. Persecuted, falsely accused, whipped, beaten, imprisoned, and yet singing praises to their God in the middle of the night. Does that convict you? It certainly convicts me. You see, here's the reality. Listen, church, no amount of factual apologetics about Jesus would have been sufficient to hold up under these circumstances. Theology alone would have evaporated under the pain of the beatings. But Paul and Silas had both of the foundations of a true faith. Yes, they knew the truth, but they had actually experienced Jesus personally so they could praise him in prison. And so, their faith was utterly unshakable. It was real. It was firm. It was built on the rock. So I'd like to end by asking you some questions. Have you ever really met Jesus? I mean, really confronted with the awesome Christ, the Savior, the Creator, really met him not just gone to church, not just heard sermons, not just said, oh yeah, that makes sense, I'm a believer now, but really met Jesus? Have you ever really come to the point where Jesus wasn't just the savior of the world or just the God of the universe, but he actually became your best friend, your savior, your God? Is your experience of Jesus so utterly real that no matter what your circumstances, no matter what arguments are made against your faith, and no matter how hard the enemy tries to take you out, the simple fact is that you actually, in fact, without a doubt, really know Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit right now, deep down inside of you, to reveal, have you actually met the one true Savior? If not, He's waiting to become not just an acquaintance, not just a concept, not just a good teacher, not just a creed, not just a fact. Jesus is waiting to become your one true reality. And when that happens, not even chains or prison bars can have the slightest effect on your faith. So have you actually truly met Jesus? And let me ask you, are you hungry for him, not just church, not just friends at church, not just the experience, not just that. Are you really hungry for Jesus himself? Stand with me. I suspect, certainly with me, when I hear these words and God has me on my face trying to teach stuff like this that I have no business teaching, But I suspect plenty of us believers here are asking ourselves, have I paid the price for both? If I'm really experiential and really know Jesus personally, but I'm sloppy on protecting the truth. But I suspect there are plenty here who know, you can, you can pass all the tests, all the theology, but I wanna know, Have you truly been transformed by the Spirit of God so that you at midnight in prison can be singing praises to God so that the prisoners around them become saved? I want us to sing this song together. I'm just assuming that I've just made you all stand up because I said stand up if you're responding. (laughs) 
because I want us all to sing this and listen carefully as we sing and don't lie while you sing. But if it's real and you haven't really met him or if you've met him but it's grown cold, meet him again as we sing together. Pastor Josiah.